Welcome to The Base Podcast, a podcast dedicated to building approachable surgical experiences for medical students in the state of Kansas and beyond. Here on The Base, we offer an opportunity to get to know surgeons in various specialties and subspecialties, paired with board-relevant pimping sessions to help you prepare for your surgical rotation, your subject exam, and Step 2 CK. I'm your host, Patrick Yeager. Hello and welcome everyone back to the BASE podcast. My name is Olivia Pruce. I'm a third year medical student filling in today for our typical host, Patrick, and I'm joined by Peyton Cavanaugh. Peyton, feel free to introduce yourself. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Peyton Cavanaugh and I am a second year medical student. And today we're joined by Dr. Sykes and I'll let him introduce himself. Hi, thanks for the opportunity to be with you all today. I'm excited to talk about this work. Um, So I am Kevin Sykes. I've been part of this kind of area around medical student education for about 17 years now. Um, When I first graduated from my master's degree, I went and worked at the state health department doing HIV and STI surveillance epidemiology, um, and then was recruited back to KU to work at KU in in the otolaryngology department and lead their clinical research. I've since transitioned to Baylor Scott and White Health in Dallas, Texas, um, and where I am the director of clinical research for the Health and Wellness Center at um, the Juanita Craft Recreational Center. So that's a really long title, <laughs> but essentially my role here is to promote and develop research that that focuses on community and health disparities and reducing Um, any barriers to care, as well as reducing disparities in outcomes. So that's a lot of my work today. And we can talk more explicitly about the otolaryngology piece if you'd like to hear more about that. Well, I think your work is fascinating, especially the breadth from the beginning of your career to now. Even though you're not a clinician, you are so adjacent, like you said, to medical education. And research is something that is always on the mind of this day and age as medical student. Um, So today we really wanted to dive into a discussion about research both throughout medical school and a career in general, and just hoping to get some advice from you as someone that's dedicated their career to research specifically, um, how you would advise medical students to finding research that is impactful, something that they're passionate about, and something that's actually executionable during their training as well. Um, So I'll kick us off with the first question. You said that you are adjacent to medical education. I don't know how often you meet with preclinical medical students, how often you interact with them at all, but how would you advise a preclinical year medical student, someone in their first or second year of school, to find a research project or research mentor? Yeah, absolutely. Good question. I think it's it's a tough one that weighs on the minds of a lot of like early, we'll call them early medical students at this point, mm-hmm. um, because everybody sort of understands there's this expectation for you to be super productive in your medical school. But, you, oh, yeah, by the way, you have to do really well and you have to get great grades and you have to be ready for step one and step two and all those kinds of things. Um, and over the really the 17 years that I worked at KU, I was always with medical students. So we always partnered with medical students to do the research that we did there. Um, And now it's interesting to be kind of in a slightly more community, well, in a totally community-based effort. And now we have medical students that rotate through on their clinical rotations for internal medicine and so forth. And we get residents occasionally too. But but that work and connecting with people who are doing research is always hard because there's a power dynamic at play there that's really intimidating 
Um, and maybe you have your own ideas. Maybe you have no ideas. Maybe you've come to this with a graduate degree already and you know how to do statistics, but you don't know where to do them, um, which is always another big issue. And I think my advice for medical students early on is to get your hands on whatever research you can get your hands on, whether that's in a field that you feel called and passionate to about, called to and passionate about, or if it's something that's like not really in your scope at the point or at the point at which you kind of have that opportunity. I think it's super important to get that experience and that exposure wherever you can get it. Sometimes it's just, hey, I've got a friend in medical school who's doing a project with neurosurgery. And so I'm going to help that friend do that project. I think that's a super convenient way to get involved. Um, and the other way to get involved in that is to recognize who are the people that you most want to resemble when you finish. <laughs> Who's doing the type of work that excites you, that connects your passions, maybe outside of medicine or inside of medicine to medicine. And so some of some of our students come and they'll talk to us and they'll say, well, I'm doing all this work um, here in medical school and it feels really clinical. And, and like, I, I appreciate that. And, and I would often ask the question of, well, what do you read when you're not reading medicine? What podcast are you listening to when you're not listening to those about medicine? What, what are the things that get you motivated to, to call your legislature? <laughs> you know, what are the things that you're, you're excited about in life and that you want to hear more about and learn more about? And then how do we find parallels between those things and those interests with the research that's going on in the world? Because if you can find connection points between your passions and the work that you're both kind of, I don't know, emotionally excited about, but also academically excited about, then you can really find a project that you can carry to the finish line. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And so kind of going off of something, if a student has found a meaningful project idea that they have, do you have any tips for ways that they can ensure that the project gets done in a timely manner to get the presentation done and get the manuscript written if it goes down that avenue? Because I think a lot of what preclinical students are struggling with is just how to get it started, how to make sure everyone else stays on on task because there's a, it's usually like a large team, um, a big group that's helping with everything. Yeah, it sometimes feel like you're, it feels like you're at the mercy of the attendings and the residents who have full fledged careers going on. They have a sixty hour work week and. Being the M1 or M2 student that's blowing up their email isn't always the best look when it comes to collaborating with your superiors, so to speak. So yeah, tips for making sure that you can keep a team on track. I think I think the the best way to do that is at the very beginning, establishing expectations for what you want to do and who's going to do what. Um, one of the things that we always talk about um, in whatever research context you're in is authorship. And understanding like what role am I fulfilling in the authorship chain? So whether you know it or not, there are different ways that authorship is handled. In some places, the first author, well, this is pretty universally true. The first author is the one that does the most work. They've done the majority of the writing. Um, they've done the majority of the data gathering or, or whatever that looks like in this particular project. And then everybody thereafter, generally speaking, is based on the amount of work that they've done as well. So the second author tends to be the second most involved 
but then your last author tends to be the senior author. And the senior author is often that, that attending or resident that you've been working with most closely, who generally speaking came up with the idea. And so where you're at in that authorship line has something to do with how much work and how many uh, how much there is around expectations for you involved in this project. So setting that expectation from the very get-go is ultra important. There's a couple of reasons that that's important beyond just the obvious. Um, the first and most significant piece is that you don't want to get in a fight over authorship at the end, because once the work has already been done, then it's really hard to have this discussion. And it always becomes very challenging to say, you know, I want, I want to be involved as a first first author, but this resident or this attending is just is just not going to give it to me. And it's best to have that understanding at the beginning. If the resident is like, you know what, this is my project, I'm happy to have you involved, but I'm going to be the first author. At least you know that, right? You know that at the beginning. Okay, so all of this kind of making its way through helps you to set expectations and to set goals. And so you want to set objectives and goals along the way to say like, where do we want to be in, in 30 days? Where do we want to be in 90 days? Where do we want to be in 180 days? And so we would always talk about what is the meeting that you might want to target and what is the abstract de deadline and then work your way back from there. So if the abstract deadline for a meeting is in October, let's say it's October 15th, like it is in many of the otolaryngology worlds, um, if that's the goal and it's today, September 12th, uh, that's going to be really hard. It's going to be really hard to have anything meaningful done in a month. It's not impossible, but it's very difficult. And so I think you have to have realistic expectations about when you can hit the timelines that you want. Um, but targeting those meetings is important, too, because that allows you to say, like, what benefits am I going to get out of this? Who's going to do the presentation? Who's going to do um, the sort of submission of the abstract? All those are pieces that you have to have in, in place. And I think that's the most important part is sort of establishing who's going to run what aspect of it and then realizing that a lot of your friends, a lot of your colleagues are going to get super busy and they're probably going to drop the ball. So if you're the one that really needs this for your ARIS application, then like you've got to be able to hit it. You've got to be in charge. you got to be motivated and you got to continue to stay on top of the team. That may mean that you need a meeting every two weeks, even if that meeting is 15 minutes long. It may mean that you need um, a, a once a month meeting with the attending, set those in place and then come to those meetings prepared, having accomplished things. So if you come to meet with an attending or, or a research faculty member that, that maybe not in that full clinical attending role, but is in a, is in a faculty position, then you want to have an agenda for that meeting so that when you sit down with me, you're like, here are the things I need to talk about. Here are the things that we're struggling with. Here are the things that need solutions. And I can go bang, 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 bang down the list and help you solve all those problems. It's when you come in and you're like, I don't really have an agenda. I'm just here to talk about this project um, or this idea that I have that's really loosely formed. That's very difficult for a mentor to help you with. It's better to have an idea 
and to come to the plate and come to the table and say, I've vetted the literature on this as much as I know. I don't see anything like this. I see a research question here that that I think could benefit the community that I'm interested in serving, or maybe it just moves science a little bit forward, even if it's just this little tiny increment. Um, and then you can begin to formulate an idea and that attending is gonna be excited about that if you come to the table in that way, because now I can say, oh, well, I can run with an idea, right? It's 10 times easier for me as a busy researcher to make edits than it is for me to create new. So yes, I have hundreds of ideas kind of floating around in my head at any given moment. But if you can come to me with even a, a mildly fleshed out idea, then I can make edits and I can make suggestions that will really benefit you. And that will really get you started on the right foot because you'll get stuck in the mud at the beginning if you don't have some sort of guidance. That was a really long monologue. <laughs> that was incredible. And someone that's now in my third year of medical student, like looking back on all that I've learned, I think you just gave everybody the golden nuggets of information they need to get started. Starting with the authorship point. I think so many students don't even think about that. They're just trying to get something started, do feel like a part of a team and just do something and get their feet wet in research. But having that initial discussion is so important because I've been bit by having that discussion after the fact. And you have to retroactively think about how everyone did the work and who contributed. And well, well, I wrote up the IRB, but I came up with the idea. And that conversation isn't easy. So I love how you started with first and foremost, you need to know where you're at on that list. If there's eight people on that list, you still should know. Are you three or are you six? Like exactly. It's so important. And students sometimes don't think about it, if, especially if they don't have that kind of experience. So I'm so glad that you touched on that. Um, Peyton, this is fun because, you know, you were just bringing up Dr. Sykes, how you have to start and kind of vet your literature and get an idea going and come in to a mentor or potential research collaborator and give them something to kind of hold on to and like get excited about. Peyton, you were just starting an application for a research program here at KU, correct? Mm -hmm. I kind of wanted to ask you as someone that's completed that and I think submitted a project or about to submit a project, if you could talk about, you know, as a medical student, what was that experience like for you writing up a project for the first time and having to come up with a novel idea? Yeah, actually, unfortunately, I ended up not doing it completely just because it was one of those things where exactly what you were saying, I felt so stuck in the mud with it. And it took me so long to even come up with an idea. I know I called you this summer yeah. and I was like, hey, I don't even know what a literature review yeah. is. Like, I have never even heard this term. So, yeah, I think that if preclinical students can actually have those terms figured out, they know what the expectation is. For me, at the application deadline, I only gave myself a month from the time that I would have needed to hash out my idea, find a mentor, get everything ironed out on, is it a chart review? Am I interviewing patients? And it just, you know, dead in the water from hour one of me working on it, because I did just to start off, I didn't even give myself enough time. So I think that now that I know for the next application cycle, if I can start even a few months before, I will set myself up so much better. I now know what a literature review is. So I feel like I'm already kind of ahead yeah. of the game. But yeah, it's it's really tough as a preclinical student. I appreciate you being honest about that too. I feel like 
it's hard to be honest about when you come up with something or want to do something and you can't think of an idea yeah. or you just don't even know where to begin. So I appreciate you being honest about that too. Did you write a project up for your re your rural experience last summer at all? I was doing one. So I kind of hopped onto an unofficial like SRTP project okay. that I did while I was doing my summer rotation and that I am, I'm presenting it in a month, like okay. a poster from it. So that's where I've learned all of this. Like everything I know about research is now just from me stumbling mm -hmm. through it out in Waukini, Kansas this summer Yeah, while I was doing my rural rotation. So yeah. Do you think it helped the most to get on board with a team because they had an idea already and maybe yes. initially it's easier, you know, you didn't come up with yourself the first round. Yeah. You got to go with somebody else's idea and contribute to a team. Definitely. Okay. I think the biggest thing, at least for someone at the end of M1 year, for me, it was way easier to get on with people that knew what was going on than bite off way more than I could chew with start to finish just building a project from scratch because mm -hmm. I had a whole entire team of attendings that were so willing to meet. Like I met with them on Zoom while they were like making lunch in their house with their kids. Like, and they were like, oh yeah, just do X, Y, Z, bye. Like five minute meetings made it so easy. And then I could just, I knew my, what I was expected to do. And then it made it that much easier. Yeah. So maybe for students out there that, you know, they're not coming in with a graduate degree or undergraduate research, trying to find a project where you're going to give up that first authorship. You're not the person that is coming up with this question. You maybe are going to learn how to do a lit review by collaborating with a resident or other student, starting with a project that you are a component of, but not the leader of could be the right way to go as well. And I agree with that. That's how my research experience started at Children's Mercy. I was put on projects with other um, residents and medical mm -hmm. students, and it was really easy to learn by doing because I was being led by somebody else. And then, like you said, once you learn through kind of stumbling through it, and learning through action, you can then put that into uh, your own sort of question or project later down the line, second year, or maybe even third year for some people. It just depends yeah. on, you know, where you're allocating your time and stuff. Dr. Yeah, Sykes, I think, yeah, just, just to kind of take that on a little bit. I think, I think it's super important to be comfortable admitting where you don't know things. Um, you have to be honest with the the faculty residents whomever you're working with so that everybody knows how to help you achieve the goal so one of the things that's super frustrating as a faculty member is when somebody when a student comes to us we give them a list of ideas or give them a list of things to go and do and then they don't tell us they have no idea how to do any of those things and then they spend six weeks and they come back and see you and you're like, all right, tell me what's going on. What have you, what have you accomplished? What do we still need to work on? And they're like, well, I'm kind of stuck. I don't really know what I'm doing. Then it's too late right now. We've wasted six weeks. So it's so much better to come out right when you meet with somebody and you want to get involved in research and you say, look, I'm brand new to this. I haven't done anything. My undergraduate degree was in I don't care what, um, and I didn't do any research, and uh, that's the reality. Like, I started my first job in research immediately after finishing my undergraduate degree, and I was stupid. I hadn't, I didn't know anything, and this was a basic science lab, and I had an opportunity to go in and 
and work in this molecular biology lab. I had never taken molecular biology because I went to a small liberal arts school. I didn't even know what molecular biology was, frankly, um, at least not beyond like, um, I understand what a molecule is. I understand what biology is. How those two things interact, I don't really know. So I think being able to go in there and be honest about your, about your situation is super important. That first year of research for me was horrible. It nearly ruined me. And so I think recognizing that that you have to be honest with yourself and you have to be honest with the people that you're working with in order to kind of justify these different uh, these different steps and to really argue, okay, I can contribute in this way because I understand this particular aspect of research. That's super important, but always stretching yourself and wanting to learn more is the like second part of that, right? So you can always say, I don't know anything, but I'm willing to learn anything. That's what we want. We, <laughs> we want you to come to the table and say, like, tell me where you're at so I can help you understand how to do a literature review. Let me introduce you to PubMed. Let me introduce you to Google Scholar. Let me introduce you to all these other databases. And then let me tell you how to start with a research question and kind of work your way through it. Um, yes, ChatGPT could do this for you. However, there are some other ways that are a little bit more proven. So I think we want to- Maybe a little more ethical too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so we want to start with that that top level kind of training down and saying, let me help you through the first few steps so that you can get to the point of being able to contribute meaningfully to the team, because you're not very useful to me if you don't have any skills. And that's not to be like mean or, or to have any kind of problem with, with you as a contributor. It's just to say like, I need to know where you're at so I can help you get to where I need you to be. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that just preclinical med students need to understand is it's uncomfortable, but a lot of learning is uncomfortable. And yeah, we have to be willing to explain to attendings that we don't know something. I feel like my experience, no one has ever been upset with me for being honest about my own limitations because everyone starts from ground zero, usually with research, especially because a lot of medical students as a pre-med have no experience with research. I feel like that's a common misconception, but a lot of us So can. true and had absolutely no idea um, what any of it was. So were. true. Let me throw a little personal experience into this too. So my during my dissertation, um, I chose to do a qualitative research dissertation because I had never done qualitative research. I had one class in qualitative research and I had a mentor who was willing to work with me, thankfully. But I spent a ton of time just trying to learn how to do this. And I did all the work to learn how to collect the data. And then it came to the time where I needed to analyze the data. And I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, but thankfully, you know, admitting that I didn't know what I was doing and talking to people who did know what they were doing really got me to the finish line. Yes, it took me a lot longer, um, but it actually got me there in the, in the end. And something, too, for our viewers that are students at the University of Kansas Medical Center, our library is an amazing resource. If you go to the KUMC Dykes Library website, there are, like, dozens of resources on there for how to start a literature review, how to begin, like, drafting something for the IRB and writing a protocol and things like that. And so those links on there are so user-friendly. They're free and available to you. I don't even believe you have to log in. 
And then you get the access to the databases once you do log in and you can conduct a really awesome lit review using the Dykes Library resources. And so when I was starting to do some research with the Department of General Surgery here at KU, first question they said was, have you been to this part of our library website? And I was like, luckily I had heard of it. And I was like, yes, it's a gold mine of information. So for those of you that don't know, that is out there. That is something you can access your access yourself and then bring that knowledge that you learn through navigating on a website, maybe watching some YouTube videos, and then come in a little bit prepared if you want to do any work prior to talking to a mentor or joining a team as well. Yeah, I think we even have free biostats tutoring. They can help with the, you were talking about the data analysis tripped you up, did the same thing for me this summer, and we have free tutoring. I also used a lot of YouTube videos. So yeah, there's definitely unlimited resources out there. You just have to be self-sufficient enough to go find them, I think. Agreed. And there are a lot of tools out there to help guide you toward the right statistical test and stuff like that. Always checking with your mentor to make sure they agree with that resource. But but those, yeah, those biostats uh, services are important. And then I kind of want to switch gears from the preclinical medical student to the medical student now that's thinking about match, maybe in their third year, maybe in their fourth year and debating on taking a research year before submitting to ERAS or whatever program their specialty of choice uses to match. Um, I know that Patrick's connection to you is from his research year at WashU. And so I wanted to ask you, when do you think a medical student should consider taking a research year to better prepare themselves for whether it's the match and having a, a good chance to match into a program that they'd like, or you know, setting themselves up for a career in research, when do you think a student should consider that? Um, I, that change I, in formal schedule, I should say. Yeah, no, it's a good question and a common question. I think, I think you have to consider a lot of things in this space. One, one thing that you're considering is how competitive is the field that you're entering. And, and what are the expectations around research productivity for that field? Otolaryngology has become one that is very competitive. Um, and that's not new, like that's been true for decades, but uh, but the game has changed. As in the 17 years I've been working with otolaryngology applicants and, and residents, the, the game has changed dramatically. Um, early on when we saw applications, and reviewed applications for residents, there was, you know, one or two research projects would be kind of the expectation, maybe a publication here or there, um, ideally a presentation. And that was kind of the, the normal applicant. Obviously, you wanted stellar board scores in that, in that applicant as well to make them pretty confident that they were going to match. But now, now step one is pass-fail. So all you've done is kind of kick the can down the road. So we've said, we're no longer going to use step one as a metric for performance. We're going to use step two as a metric for performance, whether formally or informally making that statement, it is true. And then they said, okay, the other thing we're going to do to kind of evaluate all these stellar medical students who are high performing individuals in general is we're going to distinguish them based on how much research experience they have, whether they're going to have a research career or not is apparently not meaningful. It just means that this is a way of distinguishing between high-performing individuals. And so there's this expectation that people have, um, frankly, like a junior level resident, you know, kind of application, what used to be the case. And so saying like, 
we want you to do awesome research. We want you to own your own projects. We want you to have four first author publications and we want you to do all this stuff. It's just, it's frankly getting a little bit unreasonable that I'm not in a position to influence that. So I think it's, (laughs) I know. So it's really important to be realistic with your expectations relative to your opportunities. And so you have to say like, can I afford to take a a research year? What is that gonna do to me financially? Um, Not everybody can do that. And that to me is the most unfortunate thing. Right. We, we talk about all the time in my in my area, research, uh, research team diversity. And we talk about what it means to be inclusive of a particular population and how our research workforce needs to reflect our communities that we're trying to serve. We know that that works to reduce disparities. But the problem is we're excluding people at the front end because they can't afford to do the things that set them up for these types of research careers. And they will never get into a specialty field because they can't take time off and can't afford to not be in medical school for a whole year where they may get paid 20K or they may get paid 10K or they may not get paid at all. And then ultimately expected to be productive in that time period when you're just trying to skate by. And I think that's a real disservice to our diverse populations, um, particularly those that are underrepresented in medicine. And so we have to do more to recognize that we're we're putting barriers in the way of doing the things that we hope to do as academic institutions and as as people committed to these to serving these populations. So I think the short answer of when to do the year is that I think, it's most traditionally between your second and third year. Um, that's because you're kind of making that transition from from the didactic portion of things into the clinical things. Um, I think you're honestly more valuable in between your third and fourth year as a research contributor, because now you have a little bit of clinical experience behind you. You understand how to navigate the electronic medical record. You understand a few things that are really valuable for the research team. but it's a little bit harder to navigate that transition in that period when you have to like mess up your rotations. So I think you have to be real about considering how all those things play out in your life. Um, But unfortunately, in a lot of the surgical subspecialties and and specialties, it's becoming very difficult to do it without a research year. It's becoming very difficult to match unless you have stellar application as stellar pieces of your application that stand out for other reasons so kind of generally speaking the things that people look for leadership research and service right these are the same things that we're all evaluated on as faculty members but they're also the things that we evaluate medical students on when they come to go into a residency program and so are you really crushing it on this (laughs) the service side of things if you've done just amazing things you know you've you've led a massive effort to raise a whole bunch of money for some particular cause, or you've done these things that are really, really strong from a service standpoint. Maybe you spent a year in the Peace Corps. Maybe you did two years, whatever. Like those kinds of things are like stellar service-related commitments. Um, From the leadership standpoint, maybe you were the student body president in your undergraduate program. Maybe you were the student body president in your in your medical school. These kinds of things are leadership examples that are really easy to just pluck out of the top of my brain. But 
that's what's, you know, kind of demonstrating above and beyond the, I led the student interest group for insert specialty here. Um, and it's not to say that those aren't valuable experiences. It's just to say that that's a little bit of a, a dime a dozen kind of experience. And so I think we have to figure out like what are the real meaningful, tangible experiences that allow you to be a different applicant than everybody else that you're interviewing with. And so the research piece becomes the easiest one to have kind of these objective measures around, but people can definitely overinflate their numbers in that space too. And you don't want to do that. You don't want to do what we call sausage, <laughs> sausaging projects. You don't want to have six different iterations of the same project and sort of spread them out just to increase your magnitude. Um, you want to have meaningful skills that you learn from these these different experiences. So when we talk about improving your ARIS applications, it's about telling me how the project that you did translates to a skill that is ultimately valuable to me as a residency program faculty member. So what are you bringing to the table that we don't already have or that we need more of? And so you have to think of it in that kind of an exchange so that when you're writing your application, you're saying, I did this research project. I learned how to do this, 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 and this. And these are the things that I can actually do now on my own. And this is what I hope to do with those learning experiences moving forward. So it's kind of taking it, I, I went way off the rails of your question to some extent, but it's really about this idea of like, what is a research year supposed to provide for you? It's supposed to provide for you the opportunity to kind of take on your own projects and give you that concentrated time. And if you can afford it, and you want a career in academic medicine, then you should do it. If you can't afford it and it's more difficult, then you have to find other ways to squeeze that work into the short and condensed schedule that you have in front of you. I love how you emphasize that it's the transferable skills that are so important of like taking the ownership, learning things that you can talk about both in a residency interview and say, this is what I learned and this is what I'll bring to your program, but also realistically, you will be doing that down the line. And so I think, yeah, a research year is designed for that purpose. If you can't find that in other ways, then we need to find that somehow. And maybe that is taking the time to carve out a year or even, you know, making it a part of your summer between M1 and M2 or doing something to try and build that in. I think um, students tend to get lost in the line on their CV and they're like, well, I just need, I need projects to write down. I need to do something. But you're going to get asked, what was this project about with XYZ question? And can you tell me like the process and the results and what you learned? And if you really can't talk about that, then that line is basically benign and it shouldn't even be there anyways. And so I'm glad that you emphasized the need for learning the skills and not just producing the project as well. Yeah, I think that's super important. What you're saying about your application is that you will be held ac accountable for everything you list on that application. And you need to know the elevator pitch about that project. You need to know why we did it. You need to know why it matters. And you need to know who it affects. And if you can't articulate those points, then you're really, you shouldn't put it in there because it's going to trip you up. And you want to be able to say on each one of these, and this is what I tell, I've told Patrick this is explicitly, tell me, tell me everything you want to say about this project. Like, what are all the things that you want to say here? And then I want you to cut that in about two, uh, cut that by two thirds and then say that. Um, but I want you to 
really think about like what are the things that come out of that project that allow you to move forward. I don't like none of you are going to have a project on your CV when you apply for residency that includes curing cancer. And we don't expect that. We expect you to have learned something. We expect you to have learned skills, whether those skills are learned in orthopedics and you're now going to otolaryngology or they're learned in OB-GYN and now you're going to orthopedics or whatever. It doesn't really matter. What matters is did you take something from that experience, that research experience, and learn something, and now you can apply that to a new area? Because honestly, there's very little that we do. No, this is the unspoken secret. There's very little that we do in research that's truly novel. More often than not, it's repurposing something that's been done somewhere else and trying to say, is that true in our field as well? Yeah, absolutely. I also loved how earlier you were talking about all of the outside factors that you have to consider when making the decision on if a research year is going to be feasible or not. So for a student that has decided that it's something that they can do and that they're going to move forward with, what is your recommendation on how they can connect with different research programs? Are there different things that they need to look for, like qualities that different schools have? And then along with that, is there an application process or is it just kind of reaching out directly to individuals? Uh, great question. I'm glad you asked that because there, there are all different levels of this, right? There's there's the program that needs an application that wants to see your whole ARIS application, all of your ARIS recommendation letters and everything else. And they want all of that before you apply to their research program. And then there are the programs that are much less formal. Um, especially those that are just like a true traditional research year that we're going to carve out in between your second and third year, or maybe it's a postgraduate kind of program like we used to run at KU. And I'm still involved with some of our research fellows there. Um, but they, those programs really are, are intrigued by the people who have, have that sort of, I don't know what, what to call it, but like that go getter kind of mentality, like, what are you going to do and how are you going to be effective in this time period? So getting involved with a program, the most important thing is mentorship. So you, if you're applying to a program or considering programs, you need to understand what does mentorship look like in this, in this particular program? Am I mentored by a faculty member? Am I mentored by a resident? Am I mentored by another research, you know, faculty member or another research staff member, whatever it may be? And I think you have to understand, like, what are the expectations around that relationship and how is that going to help you? So you want you want to understand what that mentorship looks like. And the best way to get that information is to talk to people who have been through those programs before and have moved on to whatever else they've moved on to. But trying to understand how did how did they get that relationship building work done in the midst of the research that they were doing? And that's ultimately what's going to change your application. It's not so much like, did you get seven papers during your research year? It's did you get did you get enough research work done to be productive and to show that you're productive? But more importantly, did you get that letter of recommendation that says from the chair or from this like high, heavy hitting research person or or even a mid-level to moderately successful person like me? Like, can I write you a compelling letter that says this person gets it right when we talk to Olivia she understands what we're talking about when we want to do research when we're having this conversation 
we want to be able to say that I can endorse her because I understand what she's going to contribute to your team in the future. As a person who has worked with these teams of residents, I know what it takes to be a good resident. I understand what we like and what we don't like in our residents, and she has it or they have it, whatever it may be. So that's that's the kind of letter you need. And that ultimately only comes if you have a close enough relationship with somebody in that year that's going to provide that kind of a letter. So don't go to a program that just says, hey, we're here to give you a bunch of projects and get you a bunch of productivity. Don't do it. It's not worth it. That is amazing insight yeah. because wow. I'm sitting here thinking, you know, I'm the person that's in their third year thinking about the future, thinking about the match. And going in with, I want a letter of rec, a heavy hitting letter of rec from this institution and not just 10 projects that I'm, you know, doing chart review and doing all this stuff for. So important because that's what's going to set you apart from your peers that also have five random projects that they did a chart review for or whatever throughout their time in medical school, because people are going to be able to hop on that easier than they are an experience where you get an amazing letter from whether it's faculty or, you know, like you said anyone in the department that's really important yeah so we will you will see an application sometimes and you can say that person landed in the right machine and they produced a bunch of work but what did they learn did they just learn how to write and submit a manuscript okay that's fine right if that's what you need in your research program or in your residency program then that's fair you know and you should accept that person if you want somebody that comes that's going to come in and kind of change the way your group thinks and want you know it's going to kind of shake things up a little bit then you don't want the person that's just been productive you want the person that's been productive and been around somebody who knows what it means to be innovative would you say that it's fair for a medical student to kind of operate under the assumption that even if they don't take a research year that if they have something on their application and it's they did research and it was guided by xyz attending and whatever specialty and that then even if they aren't applying to that specialty, they have a letter of recommendation from that faculty member that programs would look into that and value that ahead of just churning out projects and things. I, I think so. I think it, letters of rec are really hard um, because like evaluating them from program to program is entirely dependent upon how that screening team is composed. So some screening teams and some programs will value just a good quality letter, no matter who it came from. Others are going to value the quality program that generated a quality letter from a quality person that they know and respect. And so there's this weird game you have to understand that you need probably a little bit of both. You need somebody that's a heavy hitter that everybody's going to know. You need the Dr. Chews of the otolaryngology world. You need the... Um, you know, the other members of these these different clubs, if you will, <laughs> uh, that can speak for you and vouch for you. Uh, but you also need somebody who has enough of a relationship with you that they can speak to the unique characteristics that you as an individual applicant bring to the table. So you've got to have those personal components. Otherwise, the letters just sound really generic and cold. And so if you go to your away rotation and you're like, man, I really wanted a, a, you know, a letter from this person because they're like the president of the Academy of blah, blah, blah. Um, and that's awesome. But that person probably is writing 15 letters and a really, really 
good, I would say, program that's doing residency screening is going to line all those 15 letters up and they're going to say, I bet I can put these letters in order based on how much this person knows about each one of these applicants and how much they can endorse them for different skills. So if you compare across letters, uh, you know, somebody has written a letter for, for all of you from KU or all whatever, you can generally sort them out. And so I think you have to be you have to be sensitive to the fact that a generic letter from a powerful person is not helpful. That was awesome. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, that as someone who hasn't started rotations yet or anything, I feel like we get told a lot, just seek out the big name, seek out the person that's willing to, to write the letter. But as a medical student, that person who's willing to write the letter is probably writing everyone's letters. So yeah, you have to really dive deep into the connections. For sure. That's a, yeah, super good advice to know about. Okay. So jumping on that for just a second, the most important thing that you can learn about letters of recommendation is when you ask someone to write you a letter of a recommendation, you ask them, can you write me a good or strong letter of recommendation? If they can't answer that question, yes, then you don't want them. And like, you have to ask it that way. And I know that that's like common knowledge in some spaces, but it it's super important. I agree with that. I think emphasizing strong or like whether it's strong, good, however you want to phrase it, being able to say that to them and maybe even trying to ask in person and saying, I like give having that communication where it's very clear. I want to match this specialty in this region at this program, whatever it may be. I need something strong. I need something that will set me apart. Can you be an author for a letter of rec that would do that for me? I agree 100%. Because how many people have a letter of rec template? Probably a lot. Because when, you know, 15 students ask you every spring, and like we talked earlier, you have a full-fledged job and a family or whatever responsibilities, you're just going to try and crank them out. So yeah, connecting with someone that can set you apart is very important. Well, I am just so happy that we had you on, Dr. Sykes, because we have yet to have on a like researcher by like name like you have an amazing career great experience and I feel like you broke down everything that a medical student would need to know both at the beginning of their training and also just things that they should carry with them the whole time so I cannot thank you enough for sharing your knowledge with us during the last you know 45 50 minutes what have you I feel like I benefited so much from this just sitting here oh so, yeah absolutely thank you again that was well, thank you for the opportunity thanks for the invitation I appreciate the chance to talk in this environment it's something that I care a lot about and um, and I know it's this like mysterious world that that medical students are trying to tiptoe into and, and it's really intimidating and it and I understand why that's the case but but I also hate that that's the case as a person who is passionate about research and passionate about engaging and encouraging students to be involved in research. Um, I don't want it to be intimidating and I don't want it to be a space where people are hesitant to bring their knowledge, their experience and all those things that make them who they are to the table because that's what makes our research better. Um, and so anything I can do to help I don't know, proselytize people into believing that that's a good idea, <laughs> then I'm all in. Well, I feel encouraged after talking to you just this afternoon. So I do as well. It was wonderful. And here at the base, that's what we're all about, building approachable surgical experiences, but also outside of just surgery and just building approachable experiences in medicine. So I think this episode really captured that mission really well. Thank you everyone for joining and we'll see you on the base podcast soon.